Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'll be speaking today with Hector Tobar. He's a professor of English and Chicano Latino studies at the University of California, Irvine, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of six books. And we're going to be talking about his newest, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. And you can learn more at Hector tobar.com that's h-e-c-t-o-r-t-o-b-a-r all one word hectortobar.com on freeform we explore the lives and the work and the ideas of individuals that i suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work we look at politics economics environment science health culture all based on the fact that i believe we can do better and i want to find out how the show streams weekly on the progressive voices network on tunein.com and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, TerrenceMcNally.net. I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since I opened the book, Our Migrant Souls. In it, today's guest shares his stories, those of his family, those are some of his students at UC Irvine, and those are folks he met during a 9,000-mile road trip across the United States. There are experts cited, but, but not too many. This is a book that examines race, culture, politics, history, but it is one that arises out of the lived experiences and memories of regular folk. And I think that's what grabbed me. Hector was talking to me about people he knew, about people he was related to, about people he'd met. And it made me recall and consider some of my own experiences around race and specifically Latino culture. In keeping with the book's approach of building a big picture and approaching big questions through individual stories, let me share a few snapshots to give both the listener and my guest a sense of my experiences. I won't take time here to analyze, justify, or excuse any of them. <laughs> I was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts, a kind of a gray working class town. Uh, I only lived there for my first four years, but I think in that time I probably saw no Latinos, no black people, etc. When I was uh, four or five, we moved to San Antonio, Texas. Big, big change, and it turned out that uh, during this time, my, my mother was uh, pregnant with one of my uh, younger brothers, and her uh, OBGYN's office was right near the Alamo. And this was right at the time that Davy Crockett was on Walt Disney. And so I would get to visit the Alamo on occasion. And it was this magnificent, huge place that, of course, symbolizes a, 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 a kind of a a, 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 a battle uh, that's ugly in all, the, all its particulars, but one thing that struck me was there is a moment in Hector's book when he goes back to a house that his, uh, one of his relatives used to work in, a house in Beverly Hills that he remembered as a mansion, and he mentions how he went back uh, either during or after college, and suddenly it wasn't so large. It wasn't so spectacular. It was not that at all. And I had a similar experience with the Alamo. The Alamo was a huge thing when I was five or six years old. And when I went back as an adult, it's really quite a small mission. <laughs> um, we moved to Miami from San Antonio. I, I sort of consider Miami, you know, a Latin American city that happens to be in the United States. Um, I remember my favorite teacher. I went to Catholic school. My favorite teacher was Mrs. Oz Piazzo, um, who was an immigrant from Cuba. And for the f five years that I lived in Miami, there definitely was a sense, even then, we're talking the mid-60s, of, of the, the, the in enormous influence of Latino culture on that city. Uh, we then moved to Jacksonville, and I lived in Jacksonville and Cocoa, Florida for the rest of my life uh, before college. And both of the high schools I went to were, were integrated while I was attending them. In other words, both of the cities that I, we're talking mid-60s, were segregated 
and the high schools integrated in both cases by bringing in eight model young African-American children into, a, you know, a student body of in one class about 1,500 and the other about 2,500. Wow. I... When I went to college, I went to Harvard in the late 60s, there I began to get much more of a sense of, of mixes. But if anyone knows the story of Boston in the late 60s, Boston had a reputation well-deserved, I think, of being the most racist city in the North, and fight, fights about busing and so on were a big part of what was going on in that environment. I may have been more focused on... Uh, you know, the Vietnam War and things like that, but in Boston, race was a big issue. If I skip forward to my a couple of adult experiences, I was an actor and in the entertainment industry for a while, and one of my early jobs while I was uh, struggling to do those things was to sell encyclopedias door to door. <laughs> my mentor, and I can't remember her name now, but she was a fabulous salesman, she took me into the neighborhoods where she was successful. Well, the neighborhoods where she was successful were Filipino neighborhoods. She mm -hmm. was Filipino. This was in what is known as Koreatown, but there were sections of it that, that uh, were definitely Filipino. And she would go in and she'd, you know, she'd tell them how the thing they needed for their kids to break through was to buy these encyclopedias on the installment plan and so on. Once she put me on my own, I couldn't do it. I felt like they can't afford these books. <laughs> and what, was to, what meant one thing to her meant something very different to me, and I was out of this encyclopedia sales business quite quickly. As I ended up getting into the acting business, I ended up with a job that when I look back on it now, uh, as I was reading your book, Hector, I thought, this was weird. I do not speak Spanish, and I do not drink, but through a series of auditions, I was cast as the spokesperson, the television image of Bacardi Rum in Mexico. <laughs> and for five years, I would go down for a week or so, we'd shoot four or five commercials, they'd run every day um, on Mexican television, it's the most recognized I've yeah you are right this is the weirdest thing it's the most recognized I've ever been in my life everyone knew me they they'd say the slogans to me and then I would have to say you know uh, no habla espanol and piquito you know little things like that um, but I and the thing that I remember now was say two things about it one being Irish and French I somehow to the Bacardi ad agency looked like what a upper class world traveling <laughs> Mexican should look like. Not only that, I always had a beautiful woman on my arm. Oh, the, the, the campaign was that I would go into a bar in different cities around the world. So they'd shoot some stock footage and then, and then a set. And wherever I went, they knew me. Senor Gomez, otra vez in Nueva York. You know, this was this was my my commercials were so popular that they that a parody of one of my commercials became a commercial for the Mexican National Lottery with Hector Suarez, one of the nation's top comedians, playing me. I, I, as I say, I had a beautiful woman I arm whenever I walked into these bars, and it wasn't until about the sixth commercial that she had dark hair. Wow. That just gives you a sense. And now if we just fast forward to today, my stepson grew up in L.A. He decided to spend a semester of his uh, college career. He was at Oberlin in Buenos Aires. Last year, he did a Fulbright Fellowship in Mexico City. And he is now doing a Ph.D. at Harvard in architectural history. And his focus is on Latin American architectural history. So it's just... It's a crazy sort of kaleidoscope there, but that's, that's some of my experiences. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Hector, and then we'll jump into this conversation. Hector Tobar is a professor of English and Chicano-Latino studies at the University of California, Irvine, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the author of six books, including the newest, published in 15 languages. 
including the critically acclaimed bestseller Deep Down Dark, the untold stories of 33 men buried in a Chilean mine and the miracle that set them free, which was adapted into the film The 33, starring Antonio Banderas. Hector was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He was its bureau chief in Buenos Aires and Mexico City. And he's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's National Geographic. His latest book, and the one we're talking about today, is Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. Welcome, Hector Tobar, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thank you so much, Terrence, and thank you for sharing that incredible story of your own journey through Latinidad with so many twists and turns that nobody could have made up. Not even not even a novelist as good as I am could have made that up. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you know, as I say, as I was reading the book, these things would kind of come back to me, you know. I had forgotten about the encyclopedia sales until, you know, I'm, as you're in the book sitting in some of these living rooms. I suddenly saw myself sitting in those living rooms. Hmm. Um, let me tell people, by the way, we're recording this conversation Thursday, April 27th. Now, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the working ideas we talk about. And it turns out that your book really does talk about you in the context of all of this else. But can you tell us a bit about how you see your path to the work you do today and feel free to go way back. You can mention mentors, turning points, detours, that sort of thing. Well, you know, I'm an LA kid, born and raised uh, in uh, East Hollywood, uh, California. Uh, you know, also grew up with Filipino kids uh, completely. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, my parents are immigrants from Guatemala. They arrived um, in the 1960s with me traveling in my mother's belly. Mm-hmm. So I was what, um, you know, some detractors of immigration call an anchor baby. Right. <laughs> my parents later became uh, United States citizens. That really wasn't their plan. My father's plan was, like so many immigrants, to uh, earn a little bit of money and return home and build mm-hmm. a house and, you know, get his family started. But we ended up making our lives in the United States. My father always loved books, had um, novels by Guatemalan authors, especially Miguel Angel Asturias, who had just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, Always had these novels around the house, would take pictures of me uh, posing in front of globes and books. You know, always told me the value of learning and education, how this country was the greatest country. Uh, in the history of the world because of the opportunities that it afforded to people. Uh, I grew up in uh, the United States when we were sending people to the moon. Some of my earliest childhood memories are of watching the moon shots with my parents, including Neil Armstrong standing on the standing on the moon, that first shot um, with Walter Cronkite breathlessly, you know, narrating uh, those events. Um, I grew up um, not knowing, however, that writing was a profession that you could pursue. I never met a writer in college. Um, I was at first a a pre-med major, and then through a series of accidents, I ended up working at a community newspaper and became a writer. And, um, and, you know, I just, like a lot of of kids, I just found uh, a lot of passion in writing about uh, my community's history, about the city of Los Angeles, I became a reporter at the Los Angeles Times and got to tell stories for millions of people at a time. I worked at the LA Times when its circulation reached a peak of like 1.3 million. Uh, My father actually at one point delivered the LA Times and here I was writing for the newspaper. Wow! Yeah, that was was quite a a circle to close. Um, This newspaper had grown up with reading the sports pages and now I was writing for its metro section. And, uh, you know, thoroughly enjoyed myself as a reporter, but decided that I wanted to be an artist uh, like you. <laughs> you're, yep. you're an artist, right? And I, uh, and I decided to get an MFA in creative writing here at UC Irvine, where I'm sitting right now in my office. I got a degree in creative writing uh, fiction and wrote my first novel and, um, and just have become a professional storyteller. You know, I was someone who's a really shy kid, very bookish, only child. Um, my parents were divorced when I was very young, and I was a very quiet and shy kid, but becoming a reporter forced me to go out into the world mm-hmm. and knock on people's doors, just like you had to knock on That's doors right. of people for the uh, encyclopedias. And, you know, you get invited into people's homes, and you uh, you listen, and you you pay them the ultimate respect of listening to them and taking them seriously 
and empathizing with them. And that became uh, my profession. Uh, and then, you know, writing novels also, trying to capture a little bit of what I had learned as a writer. And, you know, the thing that I think has been a constant for me is just how much I love history and especially United States history. One of my earlier childhood memories is, is of my father taking night school classes at LA City College and coming home with his US history textbook for his classes and, uh, and just me inheriting this history textbook and ever since uh, just being fascinated with the story of all the different peoples who've come to make the United States of America and all the different conflicts and dramas that have played out, uh, you know, um, uh, in the 50 states and their territories. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's that's what our Migrant Souls is about. It's basically synthesizing um, 30, 40 years of, of being a professional writer and being professionally curious and trying to make sense of what this idea of Latino means. You know, let me ask just a couple of questions about that path. Um, and, and thank you for that, Hector. One just to deal with the chronology, you are a reporter and then as an adult, you go to creative writing. In other words, it isn't straight from college to creative writing? Absolutely, absolutely. I was uh, one of those reporters with a novel in the you know, uh, uh, drawer yeah. of his desk. Um, that used to be kind of the cliche about uh, newspaper reporters. Now newspaper reporters have screenplays sure. <laughs> in and their TV, desks. T- TV pitches right. even more. TV pitches, right. Yeah. right. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to write a novel, so I went. I was a reporter for five years and quit my job and came to uh, UC Irvine to get an MFA in fiction writing. Wow. Um, let me ask you one other question about that, which is: so you've done journalism, mm-hmm. you've done novel writing, you've done yes. opinion, which is different from reporting. Yes, yes. And you've done nonfiction. Um, any thoughts about what's more challenging, what's more rewarding, slipping from one into the other? Just anything about that, because you've done all of them at a, at a high level. Oh, well, thank you. You know, uh, nonfiction is a little easy in the sense that you're working from real life, so there's already kind of a built-in plot. Uh, what's hard about it is that you have to find out the truth, and it has to all be real. You know, you can't make it up. Right. So, you know, you write about somebody, you name them in the book, and if you make up something about them, well, then you're exposed as a fraud, right? And you're thrown out of of paradise and you no longer write again because that's the pact that you make with the reader when you write nonfiction is that it's all, to the best of your knowledge, true. Right. right. You, you can't add a twist. You can't, right. Exactly. You can't do Although, that third act thing. You know? Right. Yeah. Although, you know, people have done Truman Capote famously made a few little twists and, and turns in uh, in cold blood. Uh-huh. Um, but but you're not supposed to do that. And right. so that's that's the challenge of nonfiction is going out and finding the facts and getting people to tell you stories and getting them to open up with you. As with these 33 chap, trap Chilean miners who I interviewed uh, for that book, uh, Deep Down Dark. Um, you know, uh, fiction is wonderful because it's about voice. Uh, it's about expressing your vision of the world, and there are absolutely no limits. Um, but fiction can also be really hard. You know, you're putting yourself out there. You're not. It's not always clear exactly what's going to hit with the readers. So you're kind of trying to get a sense of what people might be interested in hearing from you. Uh, writing opinions for me that was always the hardest thing uh, when I was yes you know being a columnist uh, because my you know when I was a kid my parents were divorced over and over again so I don't like seeing people argue and uh, in any conflict I'm the peacemaker yeah. I see everybody's points of view and so um, to me writing a being a columnist at the very beginning especially with the LA Times was really difficult I got better at it I sort of found my groove uh, when I started writing for the New York Times uh, op-ed pieces and this book is essentially a mixture of, of all those it's a mixture of storytelling of creating these scenes and also uh, a mixture of reflecting and being this critic who tries to make sense for the reader of all of this crazy history and these crazy ideas about race and ethnicity Right. While in my intro, I really emphasized the personal story, the the personal experience, you actually do uh, take on a lot to say about your observations about the construct of race and so on. Um, 
this is going to be a long question, but bear with me. Mm-hmm. Our Migrant Souls is not a big book. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a hardback, but it's not the six and a half by nine and a half, which is what most publishers send me. It's the slightly smaller five and a half by eight and a half. It's only 244 pages, but it covers a lot of ground. Literally, whether mm-hmm. measured by the 9,000 miles you travel <laughs> on your cross-country trip or the many countries of the South whose stories you touch on as you explore people's histories and roots. And, but it also covers, as I say, culture, history, politics, um, all of this. I see it as consisting of three parts. Part one, you call our country. Part two, mm-hmm. you call our journeys home. I'm going to hand it over to you in a second. You can tell people what, what makes up those two. And then what I would call conclusions. In the last couple of chapters, you kind of draw it, draw it all together. It was also written in several parts with several sponsors, including the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard, the New Yorker, the New York Times, Harper's. And um, I suspect an interesting way to approach talking about it is for you to tell us about your writing process. For me, reading the acknowledgments where you lay out how it was funded and published first as separate articles and essays and then gathered and framed into this book, was revealing to me of how a writer goes about getting something written and published, the, the, the mix of art and commerce that is mm-hmm. writing a book today. So I'm curious, how much did you map out the process? How much was it an improvisation that grew into a book? And so let me give you the floor and take your time. How did this book happen? How did the various sections emerge and come together? And I don't just mean the, the logistics of it, but also mm-hmm. the, the meanings of it and, and what you felt you were ready to take on and that sort of thing and, and how the ideas and questions evolved. Wow, what a wonderful question. I think every writer imagines himself, <laughs> uh, themselves being asked that question. You know, I started with um, what happens every day that I teach here at UC Irvine, which is I go out and I talk to students who are usually in their early 20s about a topic related to Latino history or the history of race in this country, and realizing that there wasn't anything that really spoke about how complicated the idea of Latino is. And also, after reading um, James Baldwin's incredible book, The Fire Next Time, for the first time in my 50s, Mm. you know, a book that was written in the 1960s that I should have read, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, reading it for the first time when I decided to assign this to my students, and also watching Raoul Peck's really wonderful documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, which is essentially a long James Baldwin essay. It's a sort of pastiche uh, of many of his essays. And, and wanting to write something like that about mm. what it's like to grow up being called Latino or Mexican or Salvadoran or being, uh, you know, an immigrant uh, in this time when there's so much invective directed at immigrants, so much hatred and so many images of chaos and dysfunction that surround immigrant life uh, in the popular media. You, we, you know, those are the images that we have of immigrant people and wanting to write something about that, something Mm -hmm. Baldwin-esque. And so I wrote a proposal to the Radcliffe Institute and I got uh, a year-long fellowship. So I was able to uh, attend Harvard. It ended up being virtual because it happened during the pandemic. So for for nine months, I went to Harvard uh, (laughs) on Zoom, (laughs) which was a lot of fun. I did get to go there later afterwards for a summer and oh, spend good, uh, good. several weeks there yeah. uh, in Cambridge. What a, what a wonderful experience. And so I began to write, and I, and I began with um, these different ideas, chunks of ideas I'd written in different places, the story that I wrote for The New Yorker about living next to James Earl Ray in right. Hollywood, James Earl Ray, the assassin of Martin Luther King, where I tried to work out how it was that I first learned about racism and that racism existed. You know, like a lot of kids, I grew up protected. My parents tried to protect me from any notion that there were people who hated me or mm. might hate me because I was brown or, um, uh, you know, a foreigner or an alien. And so in that one piece of The New Yorker, I had described uh, my, my living next to James Earl Ray and learning about the history of his life and how I learned about racism as a kid growing up. And so I began to And by, by the way, let me, yeah. let me just cut in for a second yeah. and say, you do mean literally next to. 
Yes. It, it was like across your fence was his apartment building. I mean, is that? Yes, exactly. I got out old, you know, 1960s uh, insurance maps of East Hollywood just to confirm mm-hmm. that my apartment where I lived had, has since been knocked down and redeveloped. Uh, where it wasn't precisely in relation to James Earl Ray's apartment building, which still stands. There's no marker there or anything, but Mm. you can find it with the address. So, yeah, I literally live next door uh, to this assassin, James Earl Ray. And, you know, I had discovered that because I'm an obsessive reader of U.S. history. Mm. And, and yeah, and so I began to weave all these things together and to try to find a way to make them feel all like one book and not like a collection of essays. And I, at the same time, <laughs> my wife, who's an his, a historian, uh, teaches at UCLA, she had uh, been teaching a course on whiteness. Mm. This is a subject now that is taught at many universities. You know, what's the history of the concept of the word white? You know, where does that come from? How was it constructed? And she introduced me to some great authors. And that was just so thought-provoking because you learn, you know, several things. First of all, that, you know, white and black are basically stories. I mean, there is really no biological basis for the idea that there are different races in the human species. Uh, and, And just learning the way white and black were constructed, I began to think about the way Latino was constructed and reading a lot about the history of immigration ideas in this country about all the discrimination and invective that were uh, that was directed at your ancestors oh right? yes <laughs> right. vermin right vermin. right yes. at the at the irish and uh, and the germans and everyone else and learning how uh, this country um has always made use of the labor of people perceived as outsiders and invented categories beginning with black uh, all the way down to, uh, you know, to um, uh, alien, the illegal alien. So let me tell you, folks, this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally speaking today with Hector Tobar, professor of English and Chicano Latino Studies at the University of California, Irvine, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of six books. And we're talking about his newest, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. And you can learn more at Hector Tobar. H-E-C-T-O-R-T-O-B-A-R, Hector Tobar, one word, dot com. Um, so, Hector, you uh, developed this first section from the stories that you mm-hmm. learned from your students. Um, ha- did that already exist or did that uh, kind of come together to fit with these other sections of the book that you talked about? Uh you know, where did that come from? And then also, who are your students? Yeah, you know, really one of, one of the great things about being a professor is that you're, from w- one year to the next, you're always in contact with 20-year-olds. You get older, you become, <laughs> you, you get in your 30s, your yeah. 40s, your 50s, you approach 60, and you're always in contact with 21-year-olds. And so you're always learning about the way the world looks to young people. And, and so I'm writing this, this book. I'm writing it uh, for my young students to understand American history. At the same time, they're telling me stories about their communities and about themselves. And I just realized, you know, many truths that were not immediately obvious to me. And number one is how much people hurt inside. You know, your average son of a Mexican immigrant or daughter of a Central American immigrant or your average young person who crossed when they were three or four years old and has grown up as an undocumented person in the United States, they're carrying a lot of stuff on their shoulders. You know, they're carrying a sense of themselves uh, as broken, as demeaned by the larger culture. And so, you know, that, that it just, it, there's this hurt there. And I just really felt a need to address it. And so the book evolved more and more into a direct address Mm. to those students, speaking to them and telling them, um, look, you think you're messed up. You think your family has uh, been broken, right, by this wall that's been constructed between the two halves of your family. But in fact, it's this country's tradition to break people of color, (laughs) to break people, um, you know, from uh, migrant backgrounds and make them feel like that. Um, and it's part of this it's part of this process by which a caste is created, right? And so, as I say in the book, this brokenness that we feel, this wall that exists in our family lives, is part 
of the emotional foundation of this caste that we belong to, this caste of service people, right? The United States profits from the labor, um, the low-paid labor of Latino people, of, of immigrant people, and it profits from keeping those people down, from making them feel lousy about themselves. Mm. Wow. And the students that you, uh, that you teach at UC mm -hmm. Irvine, um, what percentage are Latino? Mm -hmm. What percentage are Asian, white? How, how, does, how does that work? Because we hear the voices of your Latino students, but I'm assuming the class is, involves others as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, this is a, an incredibly diverse campus. It is actually uh, almost 50% Asian. Mm -hmm. uh, Asians are the largest racial group in this campus, followed by Latinos and then a smattering of white and black people um, and, and other groups. Um, but, you know, almost everybody has some connection, one or two degrees of separation from the Latino experience. And so I have lots of Asian students who grew up in Orange County neighborhoods mm. alongside Mexican people and Mexican families and described their encounters with Mexican fast food, right, <laughs> and that kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of interracial dating that takes place. So I've read many stories of young Asian women describing how their fathers reacted when they brought home a Salvadoran guy or a Mexican guy, uh, or of um, young Latina women describing what it's like when they bring home their black boyfriend or huh. when they bring back a, a girl, when, when a woman brings back a oh, girlfriend, a lot yeah. of coming out stories. Yeah. So all of these stories are um, about these adventures with, with Latino identity and people's perceptions of what it looks like, what it should look like, uh, what dangers and what, um, what exotic twists and turns it can present to them. Let me ask you one quick question because uh, when you mentioned interracial dating, mm -hmm. It reminded me that the place that I see our interracial future as much as any, you see it in the classroom, is on television commercials. Hmm. When we see young people in a television commercial, and this goes back at least five years, maybe 10, they are almost always, now they're not always a couple, but often they are. Yes. The interracial nature you will see Someone, you know, this, 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 this palette of colors and, okay, that one looks sort of Asian, that one looks Latino, that's black, right. that's white. Um, any, any thoughts about that? Uh, it just seems like they know they're not doing that to advance, uh, you know, a certain idea of what right. society is. They're doing it because that's what the money says. Right, that's where the customers are. Right. No, you can see, you can see definitely, uh, it depends also on what the product is. Mm-hmm. You know, you open up, uh, you go on an airplane and you open up, well, when they used to have magazines on the airplanes, yeah. uh, when you open up any kind of luxury publication, Vanity Fair or whatnot, um, you'll see lots of images of white and black people, and Asian people especially. But you won't see that many Latino people because Latino people are mostly in the sort of more down market advertising. So if you watch a baseball game <laughs> or you turn on a football game, you'll see more, uh, you know, uh, more Latino people. But yes, I'm absolutely... Um, you know, as someone who remembers the way the United States used to be like, like you do, right? Yeah. To see, to see um, same-sex couples occasionally in yes. advertising. Lots of black and white couples together. I mean, that was, that was a taboo up until like about maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. You know? And to see that's the way that's changed. I am still very often, I watch a lot of sports. Uh, same here. A lot of television disappointed that I don't see more brown-skinned Latino people, you know, mm -hmm. dark-skinned mm -hmm. Latino people. And I just think that there's lots of notions that link that kind of person in the popular imagination with working-class people, with people who don't have a lot of money. And so, uh, you know, if you really want to see a lot, a lot of Latino people in advertising, you have to turn on Spanish-language right. television or watch a soccer game. Or right? watch a soccer game. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I watch more sports than anything else. And, and – and so they are catering to the young, and and so. But I. But you are right. The the the, the darker skinned Latino right. is is a rare breed. Um, let me mention a book that uh, that, re, that I was certainly reminded of as, as I was uh, reading yours, which is Greg Grandin wrote a book called The End of the Myth: From the Frontier to the Border Wall, and. He reminds us that ever since this nation's inception, one of our great myths, the idea of an open and ever-expanding frontier, was central to American identity. 
a future of endless promise. It laid the foundation for the U.S.'s belief that that is exceptional, democratic, individualistic, forward-looking. And he points out that today, it's no longer the frontier. The new symbol is the border wall, a monument to the closing of the frontier. And then to quote him, a symbol of a nation that used to believe it had escaped history, but now finds itself trapped Mm. by history and of a people who used to think they were captains of the future, but now are prisoners of the past. Those arguments about the frontier and the border and the wall are all very familiar to me and sound very much like the arguments that I make in my book, which are essentially that um, the frontier always represented this idea of the dangers at the edge of white civilization. And this myth that uh, you know Anglo-Saxon people came to the United States, came to North America to build a civilization where the natives were part of the landscape, right? And the, and, and the dangers of, of Native American people, you know, represented in, in Westerns, uh, were, were something that the United States, that Americans had to protect themselves against with, uh, with weapons and, you know, with armies and, uh, you know, with sheriffs and whatnot. And today, that image of the dangerous outsider has transformed from being the Native American brave who's attacking the, the wagon train to being the cartel operative, right? Mm-hmm. who is smuggling fentanyl into the United States or who is uh, wreaking havoc on Walter White and Breaking Bad in Albuquerque, right? Um, those images of, of Latino people, of Latino men especially, as dangerous outsiders and aliens is essentially the dominant image of American media, in the American media of Latino people. Um, and that, you know, and, and so the so the border and the idea of this dangerous horde on the other side of it really is related to that whole frontier myth. At the same time, the wall itself is merely the latest instrument in many designed to protect uh, the perceived whiteness and the perceived cultural integrity of the United States as a white Anglo-Saxon country. Uh, going back to uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, which... Uh, mm is put forward in the United States to, to keep the you know, Chinese workers out because there's too many Chinese workers in the West uh, to the 1925 immigration reform designed to keep out your ancestors, right? The Irish and the Jews and other Southern Europeans put very strict quotas on, on immigration from these regions uh, that, were, that were seen as dangerous. There's, there were too many people of Eastern European and Southern European descent, especially in the United States, um, in the eyes of the people who who put through this 1925 immigration reform. So yeah, there's a definite constant uh, between the frontier and the border wall and ideas uh, of what the country should look like. Let me ask you now, since really much of your book is a tapestry of stories, Mm -hmm. um, stories of your students, their families, their history, stories of the people you met in your road trip, can you share a couple of stories so people get the the taste, the flavor of 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 who they'll meet. I'm remembering uh, in the course of my reporting, I met three different DACA recipients. So DACA is this status that you get when you're undocumented. Uh, the United States has decided, okay, we're not going to try to deport you. We're going to give you this status where you get a social security number, but you're still kind of undocumented, right? And I met these three different um, young women who are DACA recipients, and they um, had these incredible stories to tell. One had actually been in immigration detention when she was younger, when she was 13, and now she's like 30. And she told this incredible story of the lesson that she learned from the day that she was in immigration detention. And the lesson that she learned was that this system isn't so much concerned with with whether or not she's in the United States. It just seemed to be designed to humiliate her. And she sort of took the lesson of that uh, from from her experience that day. Uh, And the second person was um, this woman who went to Harvard. She's undocumented, got DACA, but still is an undocumented immigrant in the eyes of the law. She goes and gets a PhD at Harvard, and while she 
is working on her PhD, writing your dissertation. She comes home to California and she takes these routine trips to the border wall just to see it because it's been this, uh, you know, this dividing obstacle in her life. You know, she can't travel back to Mexico. Uh, every, all of her friends are constantly afraid that she'll be deported, that they'll be deported back to Mexico. And so once she gets DACA, she goes and she, you know, visits it frequently uh, just to get rid of the fear. Um, and I just thought that was such a powerful thing that she would do. And the third is this young woman who uh, got pregnant at an early age when she was still a teenager, had a child, was abused really by the father of her child who threatened to call immigration on her when she didn't you know, behave or when she did something he didn't like, um, and who yet you know, manages to escape him when she gets her DACA status and is someone who reminded me so much of my own parents living in a box apartment somewhere in Southern California, uh, trying to uh, impart education to her children, also with dreams of being a writer with Neruda poetry on the shelves of her, uh, uh, in her little shoebox apartment in California. And so, you know, those three, those three women, all of them, uh, still undocumented in the eyes of the law, and all of them still fighting, uh, you know, f- for for their families and for their sense of their own dignity in this country. Yeah, and and, and I, I recall in that 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 last one you were speaking of, that you say as you sat talking to her in that apartment, you 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 were brought back to the your own apartment that where where your family had lived when when you when they had first come here and you had first been born i i just thought that was i could just imagine that you're sitting there and suddenly it, 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 40 years have have gone away and you're 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 back home yeah that's one of the most um that that was the way I decided to sort of close the book was um with this sense of a constant in american history the constant of migrants arriving, beginning new lives, the humility uh, of the immigrant experience, and that humility being a source of our strength. Yeah. Have you uh, seen any? I've only seen one episode. I just wanted to, to touch on this. Have you seen any of John Leguizamo Does America? You know, everyone tells me to see that. I've never seen oh, it. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's just started. I mean, really. Oh, it, it, I yeah. see. Okay. I'm thinking of his uh, Broadway show. You're thinking of his before. Broadway yeah. show. Yeah. Um, uh, he has a new series mm-hmm. of uh, seven or eight episodes, but I mean, I was so reminded because I had just I had just watched the first one about uh, this past week, in which he goes to Washington, New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami, and maybe one or two other cities, and and deals with what it is to be Latino in those cities and oh, so wow. on. So I, I I quite recommend it. I will share one funny thing about his Broadway show, Latin History for Morons. Hector, mm-hmm. he does it at the Amundsen, right? Yes, it right. Is, I say, how can you do a one-man show at the Amundsen? It's, it's what does it hold? I mean, right. 3,000, 4,000, something like that. It's crazy. But it turns out we get tickets in the front row. Hmm. And I am sitting center front row, and he needs a foil. He needs mm. a white, oh, right. a white, <laughs> and I become the butt, the recurring butt of his jokes in that show. It's very funny. I now feel quite a bond with John Leguizamo. Um, well, lucky for him was an actor, so you understood yes, the exactly. need. Yes, exactly. Now I want to go to what I called your conclusions. Mm, I'm going yes. to read a couple of your quotes, and then I want you to take off from there. Right. One, you say race is a performance. It's a set mm. of clothes thrust upon us or that we don proudly. A costume pulled off the great thrift store rack called United States history. But many of us still believe that race is supposed to describe the essence of us, an indelible truth. And then you say modern racism feeds off self-interest and individualism. Prejudice is an argument that explains why some live in comfort and others do not. So one is race as perceived by the individual, and the other is race as used by the society. Talk a bit about race. Well, yeah, you know, I think like most people in this country, I grew up with this kind of vague idea that race was actually a scientific, biologically relevant concept. Mm -hmm. 
And it was only in the last 10 years or so reading just a lot of the new scholarship on, on race ideas that I realized that it was just this fairy tale. I mean, essentially, uh, you know, these European scholars collecting skulls and measuring them and, and coming up with these categories like uh, Mongoloid and uh, Caucasian, um, Ethiopian to describe the supposed different races of the world. And, and to me, to learn that, in fact, um, the DNA of a black person and a white person more often than not have more in common than the DNA of two white people. I mean, it's just like, it's such, it's such a made up uh, concept and such a misnomer. Nobody is white. Nobody is as white as a sheet of paper <laughs> and no one is as black as, yeah. the, as the night sky. Really, we're all different shades of brown. So there's that. And then, and then learning to, um, thinking about how as a Latino person, as a brown skinned person, uh, a mestizo person mixed with some indigenous heritage that has been hidden from me, how people have perceived people like me. Uh, you know, uh, when I was younger and I, you know, dressed in jeans and would do my yard work, people would confuse me with the gardener. I was once at a, a restaurant in Hollywood for brunch and someone handed me their keys to park mm. their car, you know, and just this perception, which I don't really quite feel as much as I get older. Also, people in California, where I usually spend most of my time, are a little bit more uh, sophisticated and they can sort of pick up the clues on my social class. But still, you know, I grew up with these ideas of, of race. I grew up with the way people uh, perceive me and, and people who look like me. And, um, and, and you know, those ideas, uh, the, they're such boxes. They're so artificial. It's like... It's like a coloring book, and we don't fit in a coloring book. Everyone's story is so diverse, like the beautiful story you told us at the beginning, <laughs> right, of your own journey through different ethnic and racial yeah. identities and communities. Everybody has a story like that in one way or another. You know, even someone who grows up in a neighborhood, ugh, you know, that is majority so-called white. You know, those, there's all kinds of stories in a community like that. You know, even if you go back into the 16th and 17th century, you have, you know, French Huguenots and you have, um, you have Germans and you have, you know, just people from all over the world coming together to form an identity. Yeah, this just struck me again. Mm -hmm. At one point, you talk about anti-Semitism, yes. right? And... In a couple of sentences, you made clear to me something that I hadn't quite realized before, which is that the anti-Semite blames Jews for the, the worst of capitalism right. and for communism. Right. That just stunned me to realize that's the truth. And now you have anti-Semites anti blaming the Jews for immigration. Oh, yes. Blaming George Soros for funding the migrant caravan. And, and right now there's a man on trial for the shooting in Pittsburgh, blaming, you know, this this synagogue in Pittsburgh for bringing the uh, Mexicans across the border. You're right. You're yeah. right. I'd forgotten that connection that it isn't even just that you're mm -hmm. anti-Semitic. It's that, oh, no, they're bringing the other, mm -hmm. as you say, that they are they are the cause of, you know, of what. Right. <laughs> yeah. So now you as you get to your conclusions, you also say some some dark things about America mm. uh, and, and, and then you sort of say, so how do we deal with this? And I'm just going to read one sentence mm. right here. To live in the United States of the first decades of the 21st century is to see everywhere the evidence of the cruel unwinding of the American project, its unsustainability. I think this when I return to Los Angeles, since this is you're coming back from your road trip, right. and see the tarpaulin and cardboard constructions of the growing cast of untouchables called the homeless, or in a liberal euphemism, the unhoused. Talk about that and the role that racism and Latino plays in that America. Well. Like like you, I grew up and have very strong memories of the middle of the 20th century. Yes. <laughs> you know, of the shiny modernity of what it meant to be an American in the 1970s even, right? Uh, and, and, and the United States that I live in now isn't as optimistic a place as it was then. Uh, it's more tolerant in some ways, 
but it you know the 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 steam has run out of the engine and and the re and the force that many people blame is the immigrant right it's the immigrant who's made the city overcrowded it's mm. the immigrant who's taking the jobs it's the immigrant who's throwing the trash on the street it's the latino people and so to me i think that um that that the america that that a certain kind of of american demagogue is spreading this idea that uh and you know tucker carlson was was one of the most notorious of them mm-hmm. i mean he literally called you know latino immigrants dirty people right on the air um and still continued <laughs> stayed on his job for years after that um he was allowed to say that and so to me um uh, i i see um i see us living in this sort of late capitalism where all of us are just so stressed out you know our we look at our credit ratings um we the prices of of housing is just constantly skyrocketing and we're just under assault in all these different ways um by this economic system um that is in the long term un, you know unsustainable we cannot continue building suburbs right across the uh, across the planet we all know that now because of, of climate change right and so the excesses, because we live through a time of excess. We live through a time yes. with leaded gasoline and yep. smog alerts in Southern California. That culture of consumerism is no longer sustainable. And that's what I'm saying, that racism is a product of a consumerist, individualistic culture that m- turns us all into um, greedy spenders of money, uh, that that tries to 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 milk all of us for all of our extra cash, and that that system is just cruel and mean. And even if we wiped all the racist ideas from everybody's mind, the need to explain the haves and the have-nots, they would just make up new ideas of race. And mm-hmm. you know, of, of you know, and the, you can see that with the way a lot of people in American cities think about the homeless, mm-hmm. right? The homeless are, are becoming a kind of race of people in the sense that there is a thinking that that's inherently how they are. That's what race, that's what race means. Right. It very means good, that you, very good way you put that two yeah. together. Yeah, in other yeah. words, what defines a race is, oh, that's just an X, that's just a Y, that's just the way they are. Right. And they've done that now with the homeless. I thought that was very interesting, that it doesn't matter actually the color. They, they are becoming a right. race when you, when you think about race almost as a synonym for scapegoat. Exactly. Yeah. So final question, Hector Tobar. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is being a teacher and being constantly exposed to the energy and the idealism and the hard work of young people, you know, of young people who many times have been through some traumatic experiences and yet managed to do something as bold and brave as getting themselves into a university and to pursue a degree. That really, truly gives me hope. Uh, Having been a parent and having raised three kids and knowing that even uh, a fool like me <laughs> can raise, you know, a bumbling, you know, uh, often detached, a clueless parent like me can still raise three good kids who are creative and hardworking. That also gives me hope. And I see lots of other people who've done it, you know, and just uh, it's um, I think there's a I think one of the coolest things about the United States of America is that we are a diverse place and there are a lot of open-minded people in this country. You know, we're constantly testing, testing each other like, hey, like, how about this idea of transgender? Can you deal with that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like always a new thing. And I, and I believe that's part of the American character, you know, to always try something new, you know, see if this fits. And of course, there's always pushback. But we always manage to sort of stay together as a family. You know, a lot of people are talking about, you know, the country being permanently divided and civil war and all this other stuff. But, in, but, but you know, most families bicker with each other. There's always bickering in a family. And what makes a family is when you come back together and decide, you know what, I don't really like you all the time, but you're still my brother. You're still my sister. We're still family. And I think that that 
is part of what United States history is. It's about a family that's having these horrible arguments, but always pulls itself back together again. Wow, that's that's the family writ large. Let me. I, I will finish with. I'm going to quote a quote of yours that came to me as you were just speaking now. Inequality, uh, I think, is, is a great deal of the challenge from which the other challenges come. We got inequality of political power. We get inequality of wealth. We get inequality of opportunity. And you say, this is quoting you, today many of us create our own personal utopias with an intimate performance of power and freedom staged for a small audience, the people we love. A young mother goes to work, she raises her children with a sense of themselves and of their family and neighbors as hardworking, honorable souls. And it's kind of from that, from millions of those that 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 a future can come. Yes, absolutely. It's just it's just that um, that space that you know mothers and fathers create every day, feeding their kids, and and that that daily labor of of um, of just supporting family and and getting people to work every day. That's that's part of what makes this country great. Great. Okay, we're going to bring it to a close. The new book is Our Migrant Souls: A Meditation on Race and the meanings and myths of Latino. The website to learn more is hectortobar.com. H-E-C-T-O-R-T-O-B-A-R, one word, dot com. For this conversation and many others, interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually links to 10 articles to flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at mac.com. And you can find years archives of podcasts at my site and at Apple Podcasts, at Google Podcasts, all over the web. Van Jones, Connie Rice, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Hector Tobar. Keep up your good work. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, this is Randy Rhodes right here on the Progressive Voices Network. The Randy Rhodes Show. Smart, forward, free-thinking, entertaining, bringing you liberal news and opinion that challenges the status quo and amplifies free speech. Every weekday afternoon, 3 to 5 Eastern. Hi, it's Randy Rhodes. Listen to me on the PV live stream or on demand or both on the PV app. Just go to ProgressiveVoices.com or download the Progressive Voices app. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. What exactly is a doula, and how does it differ from a midwife? How can doulas support those who are most likely to die from giving birth? To find out, we spoke to Stannis Askew, a full-spectrum doula in Southern California who helps families from conception until after birth. Black women tend to not be heard. It's, you have a higher pain tolerance, so then when you say, I'm in pain and I need something, it's, you're okay, just push through it. When in truly there's something wrong and that's what I'm telling you. So listen to what I'm saying and evaluate me versus just assuming my pain tolerance is higher and I should just push through it. That does happen. And I think as far as doulas being present, they can help be the advocate for the patient. 
They don't have the right to speak on behalf of the patient, but they can educate their patient to make sure that they are asking the right questions or to be seen appropriately. Or even if it's not the patient themselves, the family member that also may be supporting them, give that advice to them. So it's an advocate role and educational role that a doula would play. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy.